choose to we don't have victories reaching for new heights Hi, everybody. Welcome to In Space and on the Left. Apologies for the uh, week late episode. Um, there were some scheduling conflicts with the interview uh, that needed to be taken care of that ended up meaning that we had to postpone everything. But it is a great interview. We're talking about evolution, uh, what's going on in the scientific community, and uh, what's going on specifically at Texas State University and when it comes to aquatic biology and the evolutionary chain of different types of parasites and things like that. The individual that we're interviewing is a uh, friend of mine uh, that I play Ultimate Frisbee with. His name is Kelby Clements, and he's a really nice guy, and he was uh, generous with his time. So I hope you enjoy the interview that will come after these couple of housekeeping chores. Things are crazy right now uh, with Rogues Exposed, trying to apply to different PhD programs and look for a job. So what I think I'm going to be doing with InSpace on the left is trying to either secure interviews or slowly do research about things that have gone on in aerospace news and kind of keep it to those things. And if I can get an interview, I'll record it and I'll put it up. Um, try and still do it every other week but given the tight schedule the holidays all that kind of stuff like that if things end up being uh, a week or so late things of that nature this might just be a podcast that you stay subscribed to hopefully and when it pops up in your feed it's a nice little treat so that's kind of what i'm thinking i'm going to be doing with in space and on the left moving forward it's definitely not going away i want to keep on doing this uh, a salient voice on science policy issues I think is an important thing particularly right now but I have other things that I also need to do and take care of so that's what's going to happen with the show and as always with the power of time dilation we're gonna move straight into the interview alright enjoy everybody and uh, thanks for sticking with me and I would like to welcome uh, Kelby Clements, a graduate student in wildlife ecology from my alma mater, Texas State University. Uh, journalistic ethical statement, Kelby and I play Frisbee together. I can never cover him, block his passes, but he always catches mine. So Kelby, welcome to In Space on the Left and thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, just kind of wanted to give Texas State a little bit of a shout out. And this interview kind of came out of a conversation you and I had after mm -hmm. one of our Frisbee sessions. So tell our uh, our listeners, you know, a little bit about yourself and what you do, what you're working on, how you got into wildlife ecology. Just, you know, the 411, if you would. Sure. Well, Carl, you're a great Frisbee player. So <laughs> but, uh, I, uh, I grew up on a ranch in, uh, in central Texas. And so I've spent most of my time outside and, and goofing off, you know, with all the stuff that we had on the ranch. And so I had kind of a fondness for the outdoors. And uh, that's kind of what had me interested in wildlife ecology. And once I started taking more biology classes, I became more interested in um, you know, evolution and genetics and all the cool questions that those things can can answer. And as I kind of went deeper and deeper into it, I found ecology being a very attractive um, subject to study, you know, and and also to explore in terms of what we can do to um, conserve and, and have, uh, you know, practices that are renewable and that you know um, are going to preserve what we have on the planet right so you know resource management and that kind of thing are, are really cool uh, issues and you know with with advancements in technology and global travel and all that kind of stuff we we create a lot of problems with within each uh, ecosystem around the world because we're introducing new species to places they've never been and and stuff like that and so my main area of focus here at Texas State is studying introduced parasite systems in our spring-fed rivers. So those, I mainly study two trematodes and um, 
their snail hosts and their impact on our fish and birds. And uh, just a couple of uh, kind of side questions off of that is, so could you kind of describe what exactly is the science of ecology? And um, and then kind of go into what is a trematode? <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So the science of ecology is essentially trying to understand systems in their entirety. Right. So you want to you want to not just look at bits and pieces of an ecosystem and try and solve, you know, one piece at a time. You know, if you notice a fish species is dying, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, we need to stock more of those fish. And one of those fish that I know of is uh, Devil's River Minnow. And uh, that's an endangered species that we monitor. And, uh, you know, a lot of people's answer to help that population is to just captively breed them and then release them into the wild. Well, you know, you're not fixing any problems that way. You're not understanding how the entire system works. And therefore, you're not ever going to achieve a sustainable situation in the wild, right? So the study of ecology is basically understanding the entire system and how it all works together. One of the funny things that um, I was discussing with a few engineers during my internships, and they were like, NASA basically invented systems engineering, which really reminds me a lot of the study of ecology, ecology only with human design systems, because you have computers, you have metal, you have material sciences, you have chemical sciences, you have all these different things and all these different systems that are kind of their own deal, and at least have been, because they never had to be integrated. So that, that, that I think is a good way of thinking of it for any engineers that might be listening. It's like, yeah, certainly. Uh, it's not just the fish. It's, it's, it's everything. And so it's trematodes, the it's the predators. It's, it's all this, everything. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we, we, we have an interloper. Um, so, uh, what about trematodes? You said that they're parasites in snails and then the fish eat the snails or so the way the deal there right right so the way it works is trematodes uh, the adult form of a trematode is a small worm uh, and it lives in the gut tract of most organisms they can be other places but most of them live in the gut tract and so as an adult worm it, it generally will live in a uh, gut tract of a bird and the bird that houses this trematode does not see dramatic impacts, probably uh, upset, obviously, you know, not feeling too great, but it will pass eggs in its species. Those eggs are picked up by snails um, on the ground because they're, they're detritivores. They live on the, they live in the ground and they eat fungus and everything, all kinds of muck that's on the ground. So they'll pick up these eggs and then they themselves will become infected and uh, they will start releasing another form of the parasite called a sucaria. And the sucaria is a free-swimming microscopic uh, parasite that basically it, it infects the skin of fish. And then it goes and migrates to either muscle tissue or gill tissue. The birds eat the fish and then they become infected with the adult stage. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there are multiple transformations. There are multiple levels. And so uh, parasite systems are extremely complex and hard to understand. Yeah, I remember when we interviewed Dr. Rohde, he was talking about like trying to get ahead of the uh, artificial pressure that we put on phages and like particularly RNA-based viruses mm -hmm. and just like how – but because we know the direction of the pressure, we might be – that you know it's chemical pressure we're putting on it with antiretrovirals right. and things like mm -hmm. that we might be able to predict how proteins might change so that we sure. can create new antiretrovirals and get good t-cells and all that kind of mm -hmm. but that's a different interview but like that that's interesting that those kinds of complexities kind of exist and i guess that's why ham-fisted segue over to evolution because it's trying to predict an evolutionary change does right. that ever, uh, I guess, real quick before we kind of get into the meat of evolution and where the evolutionary sciences currently stand, mm -hmm. um, are there any things like that that you're trying to do in ecology, trying to create, um, not create, but predict where pressures might exist or and then try and un understand the systems that way? I'm just kind of yeah, thinking certainly. out loud. 
Certainly there's uh we're, we're definitely trying to understand the pressure on the fish. That's where, you know, generally you'll have a, a, a bottleneck where, you know, an in, introduced parasites are completing their life cycle, but it's not really set up to complete their life. They didn't evolve with the system. So um, generally there's one stage that's particularly bad. Um, sometimes it's multiple, but in our case, this, this invasive trematode has really had a heavy impact on our fish particularly our small fish like minnows, um, you know, if they get a heavy enough infection, it will kill them outright. And uh, parasites are not supposed to kill their hosts. <laughs> so, it, you know, and that's not the only problem, obviously, that's a problem. But then you have um, no, basically no food items for larger predators in the water like bass, um, gar and stuff like that. And, you know, and then you've got, uh, birds picking up the parasite and spreading it to other places and so it, it becomes a problem so what we're what we're trying to do is we're trying to see our fish developing our fish in our river systems are they developing tolerance are they able to um, basically get rid of or abort the parasites over time you know are they building up a resistance or is it is it so fast that they're not able to adapt it's just killing them off you know because that does happen yeah yeah well that's interesting uh hopefully the little fishies make it like i yeah. I, I, I i like i like being able to go fishing every now and then um <laughs> and you know catching minnows is not what i would like to have to do like bass and gar that's where the goal is right <laughs> there you go yeah um so in regards to evolution mm -hmm. um you know it is a very like we were talking about at chipotle um it is this really sweeping theory that describes the diversity of life on earth, but sure. obviously everything has revision within science. And as we get new knowledge, like with genetics, Certainly. which you talked about, uh, that, that changes it. So you as a grad student are really plugged into both research academia and also like core curriculum that you're learning in class. So I was, you're probably one of the better people to talk to about like, what are, where are we at right now with evolution? Like, what are the big questions? What what have we answered recently? All that kind of good stuff. Well, I I guess to answer that question, that you you kind of have to understand that evolution, the idea of evolution has been around since the time of ancient Egypt, and like you say, you know that idea has been changing ever since somebody kind of thought of it, right? Um, Darwin actually didn't propose evolution; he proposed the mechanism. And that mechanism has pretty much stood the test of time, especially with with the discovery of how genetics work and a better understanding of, um, you know, how genetics basically play a role in evolution, right? Um, so I would say that the mechanism of evolution is pretty well understood. Um, what we, as best I can tell, the, the things that we struggle with are, um, understanding how things have come to this point. That's really where most of the hangups are. There are a couple of, uh, instances where you've got, uh, life histories of organisms that are so much, they're so different than our own. They're really hard to understand, um, like the population genetics and, um, some of those things are hard to understand, but by and large, um, it, when we don't have fossil records to back up what we think may have happened, we really don't know how things came to be. And a really good example of that is, um, uh, like paired appendages. You know, if you go way back in the evolutionary timeline, even before maybe, you know, in the first fish, the first fish did not have paired appendages, nor did they have pelvic. And so, floor. what is a paired appendage? A paired that's appendage a, that's a, that's a new is, one on um, me. Right, right. So, paired appendages are your arms and your legs, right, and the, right. the the pelvic girdle, which is like our for us is our hips, and the pectoral girdle, which for us is our shoulder, clavicle, scapula. Um, and so, if you if you look at paired appendages, you start going down the the timeline of fish, right. At some point, fish no longer have pelvic and pectoral girdles, and we don't really have an explanation as to why that happened. And we don't have an intermediate fossil to, you know, show us where that occurred or how it occurred. 
that makes sense? So yeah, 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 totally. So they're all those types of questions. Um, they're valuable to us because we know today we know that um, like you and I, we have um, what are called dermal bone, which is bone invasion from the skin, which if you go back far enough, used to be scales. So that it's just kind of interesting that, you know, knowing that evolutionary history is valuable to us as scientists. So one of the interesting things that uh, you said both in our conversation earlier a few weeks ago and now that I, I want to kind of dive in a little bit deeper on real quick is ancient Egypt evolution. That, 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 yeah. that is very much a new one on me. And uh, I, could you also explain through that explanation of the ancient Egypt and evolution, but also why Darwin was so innovative with this mechanism and what right. that mechanism was. Right. So, you know, long, long time ago, we didn't know anything about chemistry. We didn't know anything about genetics. You know, none of that stuff was known, but uh, people observed over time, like that they could change livestock, you know, by breeding certain livestock together, uh, they could change the livestock. Um, and at the time there was a bit of flawed thinking because they thought, you know, if I raise up a really strong, you know, really muscular cow, and then I breed it with another uh, cow that has, you know, was not muscular, but became muscular over time, you know, that that was flawed thinking. But over time, they were able to domesticate and change species, which, which, you know, is intuitive to a, to a point, you know, if I breed these two together, they're going to look, the next generation is going to look more like them, right? Right. And so that idea has been around for a long time and it has been applied across, you know, the entire biota at, at one point or another. You fast forward in history a little bit. Um, someone, well, not someone, uh, we, we basically get to the point where we, we are saying it's particulate inheritance. So we understand that some particles from mom and some particles from dad are making offspring right so we get the idea of particulate inheritance but it wasn't until um darwin came that we had a, an actual mechanism for why things change so it was obvious to people that things change over time things look like their parents you know that that, that species will change over time but it wasn't so obvious as to the mechanism because we didn't understand genetics and neither did Darwin for that matter, you know, yeah. but, but he described a mechanism that explains the process of evolution, how it happens, which that changed the entire biology game that, you know, without that mechanism, uh, biology is just a collection of random facts. You know, it, there's nothing linking anything, you know, with that mechanism intact, we can explain everything you know is in terms of uh diversity and how things get to where they are or whatever that theory allows us to predict you know and also it it allows us to understand systems better and um you know make medicine and and all kinds of stuff also designing aircraft uh, there have been papers yeah. that have been used to cite and the evolution the evolutionary tract of our intellectual natural selection of sure. how because it's always going to be inter incremental right and so you the, there are there have been papers that have been written that use biology analysis of evolution but then it's mostly like electrical arrow electrical arrow electrical arrow and then there's like a biology paper right in there describing incremental change with natural selection it's like oh well this person didn't get this government grant this plane blew right, up and right, fell right. apart and this creates those kinds of survival pressures that you're talking sure. about only sure. with things that we build, which is kind of crazy, but mm -hmm. it, which makes it so that like, Oh, when the F 35 was being designed, it's like, yeah, the Lockheed one's probably going to get selected because it's just different enough to be innovative, but mm -hmm. it's still close enough to what has come before that. It's not gonna, you know, totally upset the boat, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but so that mechanism of natural selection, oh my God, you're so big in the camera, <laughs> um, was the grand innovation. I remember I was reading a, a book called Brilliant Blunders and how close Darwin actually got to 
understanding heredity and genetics because stop me if I'm wrong. They used to think that it was um, a, a kind of like mixing, mm-hmm. but in genetics it ends up actually kind of being an either or because of recessive and dominant genes and things like that. And that's a way oversimplification. I know because genetics mm-hmm. is insanely complicated, but sure. basically they, they, they thought that they was just like stick the bits of mom and dad together, blend it together right. and, Hey, we have a new cow. It has yeah, spots. That's, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's that's the theory of particulate inheritance. Yeah, yeah. And but so, he, yeah, yeah. He got real close there, uh, but he got not very quite. Close to, yeah, we've we, there's a couple things that have changed, but by and large, his his mechanism is still, you know, yeah, what we use. So one thing that you didn't get to touch on in our previous conversations that I thought was really, really interesting. And I'd read a couple things about a few years ago were the crystal structures. Sure. And how do they fit into our understanding of change over time with environmental pressure? Because, I mean, that's a rock. That's silicate, right? So, well, yeah, sometimes. How, how, how are we looking at that in linking to biology and stuff? There are a couple of prevailing theories that that try to explain the origin of life, and that's always been a real uh, problem area for the theory of evolution. You know, evolution and natural selection; those two things uh, provide us with the mechanism by which it happens, but it doesn't give us much insight into the origin of life. Right? Um, understanding the theory of natural selection helps us to like narrow our search, right? We can understand better how, where we come from, but um, you know, it, you know, evolution doesn't explain the origin of life. Um, there have been a few theories about the origin of life, like um, that organic compounds, uh, they're everything for organic compounds were already here, you know, and by random chance they they happen to come together and you know there's there's uh, the basically it, the chances are astronomically small that that would happen and so that wasn't really satisfying to a lot of people that you know organic compounds just kind of came together and formed the first rna molecule and and whatever but because you know rna is an extremely advanced uh, i mean in terms of chemistry that's a pretty complex structure Uh, and so that was not satisfying for a lot of people and so somebody came at it from the idea of how does life proceed well you know a theory of biology is that cells one of the one of the rules of biology is that all cells come from pre-existing cells um which is an interesting theory and and so you follow that back that means that things have to be able to self-replicate. And so narrowing things down to to really simple structures that we know of that are self-replicating or systems that are self-replicating, and they have what's called high-fidelity replication, which means uh, high-fidelity replication means that it is very consistent. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have uh, discrepancies in replication. And so a good example of that would be ripples, like in, in a pool of water, you know, you create a ripple, there is a, a very uniform self-replicating wave that goes out. You know, another uh, good example is fire. Um, fire is self-replicating as long as there's enough fuel around. Um, and one of those things happens to be crystals. It's high fidelity replication. And so that is one of the requirements, right? Another requirement is that the copies of the original copy need to make copies of themselves. So that's another requirement um, because if, if the original is the only thing making copies, you're never going to make enough mass to, to accomplish anything, right? And so uh, the copies need to be able to make copies of themselves. And so um, that way you get really fast you know, exponential growth of, of what you're looking at, right? And uh, so there, there's, a, there's a couple of things that are really attractive about crystalline structures um, that, that make us think that probably crystals are, are the best option um, for life a long time ago. And also that uh, the genetic component probably did not come around until much, much later. 
um, that there is a there is a a type of evolution or there's a type of natural selection in crystal structures where uh, a crystal will start to develop. And as it's developing, it's also uh, creating a byproduct because the process is not perfect. So it's creating kind of a, a by, byproduct, not really a byproduct, but it's creating secondary structure. And that secondary structure, go ahead. Yeah, uh, crystals are high entropy structures. Right. And so that byproduct is the waste, essentially. That's the entropy sure, going out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one other question, real quick, before I let you continue, because I said crystals are silicate, and you said mm, kind of sometimes, but and you've been using the word crystalline structure. So sure. you're talking about biochemical, you know, uh, bio, yeah, elements that aren't mm. silicate based that are that, that are like, like proteins and those kinds of molecules that form crystalline structures or like no, what's going on? I, I'm with you with you know that, what I'm more referring to is clay minerals so that's, okay. that's like the standing theory is that clay minerals are kind of the target and, and Karen Smith is the first one to propose um, that living structures were, were actually probably crystalline when they first came about and uh, basically there's the idea that it can be completely inorganic at first but as you create byproducts and you encompass other structures that that becomes a part of the replication process right um, and as you're creating byproducts uh, because the let's say that crystal structure one creates a secondary structure and we'll call that crystal structure two because crystal structure two is a byproduct of crystal structure one, um, eventually the crystal structure two is going to be replicating itself as well. Right. Crystal structure one is also producing that structure. And so eventually it's going to outrun crystal structure one. And that is the new dominant crystal structure, right? And so you can follow that path of logic until eventually, you know, and, and this process we're thinking is probably a billion years. So, I mean, it's not a small piece of time that we're talking about. I mean, this is a very long process that has been proposed, you know, so um, I think anything can happen given that amount of time, right? Yeah. So you've, yeah. Got, you've got evolution within crystal structure, that eventually starts to resemble, you know, something like what we recognize today. And, and the idea is that you have, um, uh, whenever one structure overtakes another, you know, you call that phenotypic takeover. Um, eventually, you, we think that there comes a point where there's a type of genetic component. And that same thing can happen, but it's called genetic takeover, where you have complete shift in the base code of what's being replicated, right? And so it changes and it changes and it changes, right? You have all these genetic takeovers. And so there's, there's a type of, of evolution going on within all these structures, you know, until you get something that we can recognize as, as life as we know it. Right, and then you're starting to look at like carbon and yeah, you exactly. know all all the all the nice little phosphates and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so this billion year process, because I was talking with a couple of planetary scientists, and they're looking for mm -hmm. life other places. And so obviously, having a conversation with you or other people that are looking at these crystalline structures would uh, probably behoove you know, planetary science, I'm sure they are Certainly. talking to those folks, but like they are looking at the time period of earth when basically from their understanding, they kind of ignore that billion year process uh -huh. because from a, a planetary formation standpoint, Earth's still going through so much crap that the life that we would really kind of recognize and would actually change the chemistry of an atmosphere, things like that just don't, don't exist yet. So detecting it's going to be too hard yeah. and so from from their perspective the time period that earth got to a place where the biological life could be to when the biological life was around mm -hmm. um like the really primitive rnas and the things that were starting to add oxygen to the atmosphere in in mm -hmm. high rates and mm -hmm. it was like purple algae clouds or something like that then ended up dying out and then green algae came up or something i, I don't remember all the entire history of it sure uh, from my uh my 
community college ge- ge- uh, <laughs> physical geology class. But um, uh, that all happened really quickly from when Earth be- became stable enough where it wasn't being bombarded all the time. And the time period that you're talking about, I think, in Earth's history is when it was being bombarded. Because it was bombarded for like a billion years. Right. Um, right, right after the core was Yeah, this is formed. a completely unstable situation that we're yeah. talking about. So, you know, you can have... You can have this process happening, and and uh, that one of the theories is that uh, organic matter was on a meteorite or something like that. Yeah. You know, there's there's all kinds of theories like that. But the the point that I think that the you know, and this was a theory that was uh, proposed in the 80s, and I think that the the reason was because it, it something like a DNA structure, even even a simple protein, that that is a pretty advanced um chemical structure i mean yeah, it, it's it, big it's, it's yeah. got a lot of stuff in it yeah we were right. t- uh we uh, i talked to dr morgan cable about all of that stuff like that and cassini they didn't expect to find something like that because it is so complex sure and but they had trace references in their spectrometer of something along those lines when they threw flew through in solidus's water plumes they were only to detect able to detect the more primitive, really smaller stuff. And mm-hmm. we're using primitive for less complex and advanced for more complex, just sure. for like the verbiage wording for our listeners. So these really, uh, these really much more simple molecules that were like firing off going, hey, we're here, but they were in proportions that were like, these things are probably attached to something larger and more complex. And that's the proteins that we're all more familiar with Hmm. so or at least we think and we hope because i mean that's going to mean a really interesting mission hopefully sometime (laughs) in the next two decades oh yeah um but i from everything that i've learned about it just to give my armchair quarterbacking is i i had this general feeling that one of two things probably happened is um Life probably came about in some similar fashion to what you're talking about on Mars because it was it was stable first um, and it was wet and warm first before Earth was. Earth was still boiling hot and all this kind of stuff like that. So the crystalline process might have been ongoing on Earth, but the organic material process that you referred to, that transition, mm-hmm. might have occurred first. And so you might have some really primitive proteins that mm-hmm. if they found a, a stable environment, they might start self-replicating. And there's another experiment that happened fairly recently where they put, a, I think, a bunch of lipids together and they formed the dual wall of a cell membrane just spontaneously as long as those elements were there. Mm-hmm. But again, they had to have those really complex proteins, which that's right. the that's the big problem is what sure. I'm hearing from you. Sure. Yeah. Is getting those a stable environment for those complex proteins and a way for them to form right. and then attach to each other and start replicating is is the real trick. Not so much, oh, the environment's right, right and they are already there, so boom, cell wall. Right. No, that, yeah. that's not the problem. <laughs> we know that. It's well, it's the step if, before if that. Look at everything that we know about life today is it, it's a process you know that it, like if i want to know where my jawbone comes from evolutionarily speaking i can trace that all the way back to pharyngeal gill slits in uh say hagfish you know i can do that because of what we know about evolution and the fossil records that we have so we know that it's a process you know and so things aren't really just spontaneously occurring you know there's there is a pressure. There is a something happening that causes development of. Um, so, in the case of the jaw, the first gill slit is cartilaginous, and over time, it becomes the jawbone, right? And that jawbone you see for the rest of evolutionary time, up into birds and mammals, right? So, it's not satisfying to a biologist to say, "What was the origin of life?" Yeah, well, you know, there were just a bunch of organic compounds that came together and formed a cell. The reason that's not satisfying is because there's no mechanism there. It just happened. It just happened. You know, there's no, yeah. there's nothing explaining that process. And so it's like evolution. I can say evolution occurs, but unless I give you the mechanism of natural selection, it's not a satisfying answer, right? So that, I think that's the main hangup for biologists is that 
and I'm not speaking for all biologists. I'm, I'm just no, no. You are me. like now that you're now that now that now that you're being interviewed by a major media science publishing right, journalistic yeah. outlet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Hey, you, you know what? When, when when certain people end up getting questions like, "Really, do I have to represent the whole community today?" So, um, welcome, yeah. welcome to that world, brother. Sure. Yeah, great. <laughs> I mean, I get, I get. Uh, I was more referring to you know uh, people who are in marginalized groups and stuff like that. They're like, "I was just trying to watch you know this TV show," and then I get asked a question about it. Now I have to speak for everybody that Everyone? belong that yeah. I that I, that that is in the group that I belong to. Right, but like, right. I, I get asked about like space stuff all the time. So that that that, that is my little bit of feeling that I'm sure it's much. I know it's much worse for other people, but I'm like. I don't oh, have an opinion yeah. on that. I have no idea. Like, sure. um, so then I have to go research it. But yeah, welcome to that club. Um, nice. But to kind of finish my thought, like, so that either happened on Mars and a rock got blown off there because the bombardment still wasn't quite over. Like, there was still stuff around, but it was stable enough. So you might have a few million, um, you know, tens of millions of years before things get unstabilized. So you can have some primitive replicating molecules or nearly replicating molecules and that rock ends up finding its way over to earth and it finds fertile planting ground but still that crystalline process took place somewhere or something something along those lines to 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 bridge that gap of gradation between inorganic Mm -hmm. sludgy stuff to something that is starting to look like a complex protein that can replicate eventually and you can you know we i I think it's funny that we say that a lot like oh well organic matter probably came in from a meteorite but then where did that come from well you know so you still where did the organic matter yeah happen like where did that how did that form in a star (laughs) yeah when it exploded the atoms were created Yeah. yeah. So what, what I what I mean by like it came from a meteorite is to say that there's like those two possibilities of of Earth having life on it. Like mm-hmm. it did it, it, it. There was a there was an environment that was conducive, and then over time it happened by whatever process it happened. It's definitely uh, possible that we're a line of aliens. Or or it happened somewhere <laughs> else that was close, and there was a sure. panspermia event. Right. And, I, I get your, I get your, I get your line of thought that like, well, it came in, coming from another planet is still kind of unsatisfying, it, it, because whenever I hear people say that as, and they, there's mostly sometimes like, not uh, exobiologists, mm. it's the planetary scientists who study the physical geology of a planet. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. there's a material exchange, so life could have come from there, and then they're like, they're they're done. They're you done. Know? Yeah, they, yeah, they're done. They're they're they're, they're yeah. cool with it. And then right. their exobiologists and their biologist friends have to go. Well, then. Yeah, but where did that come from? <laughs> but where did that come from? Now I have to go to another planet to answer the damn right? question. Yeah, Are you freaking yeah. kidding me? Exactly. So, um, well, which I mean, as right. far as being a space explorer, I'm like, yes, that 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 that's it right there. Now fund us more. <laughs> right. Yeah. But the, the the on the honest the honest truth of it is, um, it, I, either one really could have been the case. Uh, mm-hmm. Venus probably wasn't uh, at any point in its history capable of. We're fifty-one percent positive that <laughs> you know, forty-nine percent. It's probably something else. Fifty-one percent probably originated here. Like, yeah, that's how it is, you know. And those few percent change based on new information. You know, it goes back and forth. Yeah, yeah. So, but but also like to 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 your question about like where did it all come from like sure. um clearly all of the organic material that managed to be on the surface of the earth just just the just the the physical elements um came during the bombardment phase of the sure. planet's formation yeah. because everything else would either fall down to the center when it's molten right. and so you'd need a harder surface and so everything that we have that is the organic stuff had to come during once the bombardment got lighter and the planet wasn't being turned molten because sure. something about half its size comes and hits it and yeah, just liquefies yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Um, that's too unstable of an environment. So everything that we are uh, came from the dust cloud yeah, that, that is yeah. the solar system. Right, um, right. 
but I, I totally also feel you because that was kind of the sense I was getting. It's like, well, it, it coming from a rock from space is totally unsatisfying. Like, okay, then what process, what process yeah. happened on that rock? And it's like, like right, right. well, at that point you got to go find the bloody rock or something yeah, like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. then it's like, man, that's going to be, that might be hard. It also might be easy. There might be a lot of rocks out there that sure, have that process right. ongoing, but it's really slowed down. It's really muted because the environment mm -hmm. of the vacuum of space is, is so harsh. Oh, yeah. And so it required it to actually impact the earth in a more stable, warm, uh, less radiation baked environment um, <laughs> for for that crystalline yeah. process maybe to yeah, move yeah. forward. So, um, and there's that, there's so much there's yeah so much more literature on that process than I I I told what little I know yeah and I I probably even got a portion of it wrong but there's definitely so much more to that and it's a very interesting theory. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think as our as our tools get better, particularly in the astrophysics realm, um, mm -hmm. we're going to be able to start giving y'all a lot more uh, as as far as ecologists and evolutionary biologists who are looking at the pre, uh, the question of the origin of life, probably a lot more you know definitive answers about those crystalline structures and how they can exist, how they form, um, where they come from, like um, do they like what kind of asteroids formed them? How common are they? Uh, do, sure. they do, do, do they form on um, essentially dead worlds, you know, worlds that don't have any life on it, but are maybe <laughs> geologically active? Mm -hmm. You know, how do those crystalline structures that you were talking about that are silicate based that are in those muds and things like that form? Mm -hmm. And what environments does that happen? Because we now know that during certain time periods on Mars, there's liquid water. We know that mm -hmm. there's uh, liquid nitrogen on titan we know that there's liquid we think most definitely water in Enceladus. we think that there's a whole lot of water um liquid underneath the surface of europa mm -hmm. um and and for those that are just joining the episode in the show for the first time ever and don't know that those are the moons of uh, saturn and, and jupiter but like so those questions could inform how how and where those structures came from Sure. In so far the formation of the solar system, um, because in the end, you got to have a place, or at least so in so far as we know, for life, but definitely life on Earth, because we're here. We needed a fertile planting ground. We need a nice, you know, environment to exist in. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be interesting, and I know that's coming in the next couple of decades, as far as the tele <laughs> yeah. the, as far as the telescopes that are being constructed, they'll be able to better See help better. answer yeah. those questions, and then. The mission that I'm really, really excited for um, is, I mean, I, I totally want people to walk on Mars, but like the mission that I'm really excited for when we start getting close to that is actually going and visiting Phobos or Demos because those were captured asteroids and mm -hmm. finding out what part of the solar system they're from mm -hmm. and tracing that history back. Um, because the questions those objects could answer are going to be very interesting, even if they're only from one region of the solar system. They just kind of typically were just orbiting around Mars right. and eventually got captured by it. They were kind of in solar orbit mm -hmm. close to Mars, or they were mm -hmm. these really weird eccentric orbits that were kicking around, right. um, and then they got grabbed by Mars. Um, I th think it's Demos, I would be willing to bet, is – the latter of those two because it is on a highly inclined orbit around Mars. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, you're looking at something that um, probably was coming in at a really weird angle and then just got grabbed because mm -hmm. we see that in really big gas giants that orbit close to their stars They're called uh, hot Jupiters. They orbit around their stars super close, but also at really weird angles. They don't orbit on close to the equator in the ecliptic. So, um, that's that's what my bet is, but we won't know until we send some people there, right? Yeah, or some probes, and so that's coming, and that's going to give biologists on Earth a lot of information about the early solar system that we don't have right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Feely and that mission that landed on that um, comet and Stardust gave us a lot of really cool information. We have rocks that came from space, but they're contaminated by the Earth environment, so we can really only examine their geology. But when we'll be able to look at them uh, in their pristine form, 
is going to be something that I think we're going to, we're going to learn some stuff that's going to, yeah, that that is really going to really help Mm -hmm. you out. The other thing that I remember you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is about as far as once we get to like the organicness of life, you said that it actually didn't, we don't think it formed in the oceans anymore. We think it formed in the, the shallow streams. We maybe it, but it's it's up in the air. So there is support for both situations, and it's one of those areas where you're like fifty one percent, fifty forty nine percent. You know, so it's yeah, like we're one percent convinced that it's it's more you know fresh water than salt water or whatever. So there's there's evidence to support that um, estuaries and more freshwater influenced areas you know, contributed to the first, you know, life environment. You know, we don't, we're not really sure, but it, it would be, it makes sense, right? Because, um, you know, compared to the volume of the ocean, the majority of life happens close to the coasts or in fresh water. And so there has been a lot of work done to answer the question, why are there so few fish in the sea? And uh, there's numerous answers, but yeah, there, there is speculation as to where did life start and where did it evolve? And specifically, uh, there is some implication for vertebrates because the first fish, you know, it, it's 49, 51% probably evolved in estuaries or freshwater circumstances. Yeah, I just remember like geothermal vents and chemothesis mm-hmm. was all the rage back like in the early aughts and in the 90s when I was right. still watching all my nature documentaries, which, you know, the whole crystalline thing, I only just now read about in the press like five years ago. And you said that's been around since the 80s. I mean, right. And that's going to get to the, my last part of this conversation before I let you go, which is science communication. But like, um, like my big question when it came to the geothermal vents at the bottom, the deep parts of the ocean and the estuaries Mm. and wherever life started, whether it be in the ocean, which I really doubt it would be out in the open ocean, (laughs) those environments are are very unstable. They're always moving around, Mm. all that kind of stuff like that. I just feel like that that would not be a place where these delicate components would be able to come together very well. But down closer to these places where it's nice and warm there's lots of energy and these Mm -hmm. sulfides going around that seems like a a decently viable location but also so does the estuaries and at some point they either both started in the same spot or one started uh, first and then moved down there somehow sure and obviously bacteria go freaking everywhere there's bacteria crawling around on the surface of the space station somehow there's algae on it so like life is really resilient we, we don't give it enough credit sometimes I think. Right. but it always still just kind of fascinates me like man if it started all the way up over here in some estuary in the middle yeah, of yeah. bum pangea nowhere yeah and then crawled it its, its way, way all the way down mm-hmm. there um and 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 vice versa it's just fascinating i i, I want to know more about that process how that happened yeah. Because there's there's this vast area where there probably isn't a whole lot of resources for life that evolved here, even as simple as just some replicating molecules for it to mm-hmm. then move all the way over here. How the bloody hell did that happen? Yeah, that's what, yeah. I, I want to. That's a question I want to know. The very, answer to. Very cool. Yeah, but there seems to be a thirty year gap in when I read about something. In like Scientific American, even sure, you know, a good publication that does a good job of mm-hmm. giving you the facts, making it, making them all approachable, all that kind of stuff like right. that. Um, and at least certain areas of science, I mean, some things in like astrophysics and stuff like that tend to come out pretty frequently. Rapid. Like we learned about LIGO and the gravitational mm-hmm. waves, pretty well around when that happened. Of course, that was Nobel Prize worthy work. Um, sure and stuff like that but like these big questions that we're dealing with in evolution and stuff like that about the crystals i only read about five years ago like Mm -hmm. and i think there is a wall between the quote-unquote ivory tower and journalists trying to tell these stories um right and so i was wondering any thoughts that you might have on that kind of general situation about how how as a scientist you might want to try and tell your story better um 
And what can I as a journalist try and do to tell your and others story better um, right. to stay on the cutting edge so that people know, like actually know what you think is the way where things are and what the cutting edge is. That's, that's 20 to 30 years old in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's certainly a good question. And it, it's something that I deal with pretty frequently. Uh, most biologists deal with pretty frequently is uh, that they're, you know, there's somewhat of a, an amazement among the biological community that we still have pushback against the theory of evolution. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible to biologists, you know, and the reason for that, you know, we're astounded that people resist the idea of, or the theory of natural selection and and evolution. And, And I think the reason that people are so astounded that there's resistance is because biologists go through all of the baby steps to understand the process. You know, we take genetics courses, we take, well, we take functional biology courses, genetics courses, we take chemistry, then we take evolution, the evolution class, you know, and, and before that we've already taken ecology and organismal and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, when you walk up to somebody on the street and they want to, they want to ask you about evolution, they're essentially asking you to give them a 10 minute rundown of two to four years, you know, learning. And so that I think the, the big disconnect with, with our public, which is very polarized on the topic of evolution and, um, you know, scientists that already understand it. You know, the big disconnect there is that we have these intermediaries exchanging information between the scientific community and the public and um, not always with the best of intent. Right. Um, You've got people that try and canonize uh, scientific discovery to alienate people. And that always causes fear of discovery and, and that kind of thing, particularly with religious groups and more traditionalist groups. Um, and then you have uh, just the opposite, where people try to smear scientific discovery to protect their own insecurities. And so there's a lot of politics that that go on, uh, you know, in the hallway between the room of science and the room of the, the you know, social interaction. You know, there's yeah. a lot of politics that happen in that short distance. And so, uh, you know, the main thing for me is that people need to somehow be able to shift from thinking that science is providing us with absolute truth to thinking that science is the best answer that we have given our information. That, that is a, I think is a, a huge step in the right direction that people believe in science, which I think is not a really healthy attitude because belief indicates faith and it, it indicates that potentially you don't, you're not addressing things logically and empirically. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, you know, I don't believe in evolution. I don't believe in natural selection. There are people who do. I accept evolution as the best theory to describe the information that we have. You know, tomorrow we can, we can, learn some new information that changes the whole theory. And if I approach it in a way that is very logically based, that this is the logical answer because of this empirical evidence, it provides me freedom to change when I get new information. You know, I'm not so married to the idea of evolution that when new information presents itself that is contradictory to that, I can't, I can't adapt and change and and grow, you know, and that that I think is is a a huge issue with with our community. Yeah, one of the things uh, before I get into where I think some of the problems are on the communication and journalism side, mm. uh, just kind of going to the uh, the factionalization, uh, which you referred to as like the politics of it, which yeah. certainly I would agree politics are part of it. But I think I think. Uh, maybe a better word for it would be like the factionalization. Like you have different groups that have certain ideas. And I definitely agree with you with the whole idea about belief. Like people used to ask me, well, you do, do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? And I'm like, well, no, I, I, I I don't. Um, (laughs) I, 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 I believe in 
humanism. I believe in you. Sure. I believe in me, like in the sense that I believe that we are capable of doing things. And I, sure. I, have, I have faith that Kelby, you as a human being are going to go out and do some cool stuff because, <laughs> and it's not entirely faith-based. Like I, I, I see that you're a really awesome dude and I like I hanging am. out with you. So I'm going to have faith in you. Um, but a, faith, one, a good faith statement is you either do or do not believe in God. Yeah, yeah. That's a great faith statement because you really can't say one way or the other. Yeah. You believe that, you know, so that is on faith, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so like the, but insofar as those kinds of things that I have believe in that are even demonstrable that I know exist, like you exist, you know, Certainly. Um, I know you mainly from Frisbee and our conversations. Right, right. But. I don't know you as well as I say, no, my brother. Sure. And so I have to have a little bit more faith in you as a human from what I've seen than I necessarily right. – that you're going to go off and go do what I think you're going to go do than my brother mm -hmm. who I've known my entire life. Right. And that's the stuff that I believe in. I also have – a pretty unbounding faith in humanity, despite some pretty glaring evidence to the contrary. Some, sometimes, yeah, some horrific things happen, but by and large, we we make it work most of the time. Uh, yeah, I hope I hope we do. But yeah. as far, but uh, and then you know, when I was a tour guide, people would ask me those kinds of questions, and I'd be like, "Well, I believe in humans, and I believe in I believe in you, and I believe in me, and all this kind of, and I believe in these sets of principles because I see, mm -hmm. at the very least, what belief in those principles bring about in action in people." But as far yeah. as like the theory of the Big Bang, I don't believe in it. It's the best model that fits the yeah. evidence. Right. And right, that's right, it. Right. Like, yeah. uh -huh. you know, whether the, the, the idea, though, that I think to kind of piggyback on what you were saying about evolution, I think it was very key that you said it, and we could find something that would change it tomorrow. And I hear a lot of times where some, pe some people will say who are scientists like, well, there could be a piece of evidence that would entirely unseat the theory. And there could be. But the likelihood of that happening is very it's low very because it's, yeah. it's a very robust model. So I think your Absolutely. word choice there was very good. And I wanted to point that out because it's fine if the theory changes. It's been challenged thousands and thousands of times since right. the origin the of species record, was published. It has, it has changed a lot. In yeah in past years it doesn't mean it's a terrible theory it just means that we have more information yeah if anything it means it's a good theory because the steady state theory it died like yeah, it went, yeah, it went yeah. the way of the dodo um right. Right. and but the big bang theory what ever ever since you know the the cmb and the alfred and penzias's observation of it was discovered and then like the amount of helium was confirmed in the universe right, to be right, within right, the right. margin of error that we thought it would be like it was just like well that and then also uh hubble's law was confirmed and refined astounding yeah it was like those three things are like look this is the model unless unless somehow all three of these things are completely unseated the universe had a point where it was really really tiny and it expanded and all the consequences that are found within that and i think that's a very important distinction to make whenever anyone talks yeah. about it but as far as my end of the uh the conversation because i'm in the intermediary zone you know mm -hmm. there's the public there's the scientists and then there are the people that communicate on behalf of scientists or scientists right. who communicate for all scientists and then there's journalists who mm -hmm. report on what scientists are doing and the forces at work and the economy and um, what drives what media gets out and all those kinds of things like that. And then, of course, the forces that are that are at work in our public and private education systems, all because those are all the intermediary phase. And those forces are really in some ways purposefully, but mostly just inadvertently by their own mode of working uh damaging the ability of i think the public to really understand what's going on in science certainly certainly and there, i mean there's also people that attach their identity to their work you know there there are a lot of people that they outwardly oppose certain groups um because it threatens their identity in their own work you know and so there are there are scientists that um, try to snuff out other scientists' work because their identity is is rooted in, you know, the things that they have accomplished. And if somebody produces research that contradicts that, that's a problem for them, you know. And so there's yeah. 
there are multiple, you know, there's not perfection in either group. You know, the community of scientists has its own issues. The public has its own issues. The intermediates have their own issues, you know, so it's, yeah. it's a compounded effect across that, you know, and it causes all these misconceptions, like, you know, at some point I need to do an episode about um, the scientific community and like peer review and the issue yeah. of like, you know, the, the, the one, the one big the thing that I keep on hearing about is like, there's not enough funding and the incentive structure also isn't there for replicating studies. Like that's a that's big, that, that, that's a problem because yeah, that is true. a huge part of peer review. Uh-huh. Um, and as good at, as the scientific method is at weeding out ideas that don't produce predictable outcomes based off certainly. of models, um, it, it certainly has its flaws. And I think touching on those and making the public aware of them, because well, the one thing the public can do, because the public should want it, is a good peer review system because it makes medicine better. What on Earth so is that? Is, is that a, is that a xenomorph? Do you do you have a face hugger? <laughs> yes, that's exact. No, I have a. I'm showing Carl a snail that I work with. Oh, and, nice. Uh, just to illustrate your point, I this little snail is producing a parasite known as Philophthalmus um, growli, and it, um, it there's new there's numerous uh, cysts in that vial, but. There, yeah, I know. There is generally not very much funding to understand a lot of things about the the dynamics of those systems, and and as far as replication and that, like we, what you're saying, you're exactly right because the literature that I've read about, um, you know, the life history of these organisms and the way that they, you know, what controls their uh, uh, shedding rates, and when I say shedding rates, I mean how many cercaria they produce or whatever have not been matching up with the things that I've been recording. And, you know, then I find there's another person studying it and that doesn't match up with them and ours don't match each other. And so there's so much variability in the biological realm that you have to have replicability. Like you have to be able to replicate several times to be able to understand the system Yeah, a whole lot of times. So I, I'm, I feel what you're saying. Yeah. And sometimes that's just part of the natural process. Like there, in some cases there might be a decent amount of funding to be able to eventually get there. And you're mm-hmm. just in that zone for this particular situation. I would imagine there's probably not. Right. And that kind of goes to one thing that I talked with uh, Dr. Amira about, which is like, look, make your voice known about this to everybody who listens to this, like scientific funding for things as much as you might not think this might affect you in some way, shape or form, like just making sure there's an ability to have replicability within the Mm -hmm. system that it becomes that it's the, it's a habit. It's ingrained in scientists. I mean, you can hear how much Kelby wants to have it. And, but the more we institutionalize low funding, the more we are going to incentivize people to try and just get their name out there by discovering something and not just go and replicate things. And so that is a critical is issue because you can, you can, by starving scientific institutions, create institutionalized incentive structures that then create natural selective pressure for a bad <laughs> evolutionary trait. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, and that, that is one of the reasons why, uh, despite the fact of all of the time crunches that I end up experiencing, I want to keep on trying to do this show as much as I can, which that goes to what I'll probably end up saying before you come on the show, which I'll nice. record later, because again, time travel. Um, <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to really quickly talk about before I let you go? I know I've absorbed probably about an hour of your time. Yeah, uh, no, not really. I mean, the, if, if there was a message to take away from... Um, from what I have learned, it's probably that don't don't marry yourself to any scientific principle a hundred percent. You know, keep yourself flexible that so you can be objective, so you can adapt and and uh, you know so you can keep learning. You know, that's yeah. that's usually what I what I see in in uh, even in my colleagues is that they become very very wed to. Um, certain theories and certain ideas, and then it affects the way that they do research. You know, if they, yeah. they accept things as truth, they can't adapt to new information and they can't, you know, 
learn about new systems and be better scientists. So. Yeah, I, I know in my own research, that's been something that I've tried to come to grips with. Because mm -hmm. when I first started out wanting to go work at NASA in public affairs, I had this idea as like, well, move the, the, move the opinion of the American people. And while I still think that is a an entirely viable and thing to do because I do see it happening like with the mm -hmm. movies like the Martian and things like that. There's a, a big ground selling the popularity of SpaceX and just all the NASA t-shirts I see more and more and more. Like there's obviously there's this, there's this ground swelling of interest in science sure, and certainly for space exploration. But I also know there's a big disconnect with the public and then also, and it's not something that they really vote on and trying to convince them to vote on it is going to be very, very difficult. Right. And so try, and so my, my studies and my experiments have gone a little bit from like trying to understand trying to know what's going on with the public and what arguments they would agree with to understand the silo that is the public, the silo that is the elected official right. and the silo that is the, you know, the technical person mm -hmm. and how any of those interests can synergize yeah. in order to create change. Yeah. And that's kind of the step I'm on right now is like, mm -hmm. I think I have a decent enough understanding of the silos. I still need to do some more research there sure. to really understand mm -hmm. them and stuff. But like, and that's been an adjustment for me because I was very steeped in this idea that simply just speaking to the American people will get the job done. And then I looked at the research and it's like, nope, that, that, that won't do it. it is, there, there's That will be a component of it. And it might even be the lesser component of it as much as you like talking to the American people as a civil servant. Right. You might need to do, go do something else. And yeah. that's a hard thing to come to grips with it and I'll I'll freely admit I haven't fully come to grips with it yet. Otherwise I probably wouldn't be doing this show trying to again talk to <laughs> the American people and convince them yeah. these things. So I think yeah. that's a good piece of advice um for me. So thank you for that. And thank cool. you for coming on the show, Kelby. I really appreciate yeah. it. Um you and your wife need to come out and do frisbee more often. I know. I, I, know. I, I miss you too, um, because I can. I, I can't. I can't cover you. But when we're on the same <laughs> team, it's all. It's always good because you catch all my passes. That's right, man. All right. Well, take care and uh, do good work. Thank you awesome. so much. Thank you. All right. See ya.